Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talk about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm the editor Peter White and we've got with us a full set today. We've got solar analyst Andres Vontanar. Hello there. And we've got hydrogen aviation analyst Bob Dan Evermuta. Good morning. And our EV and oil analyst Connor Watts. Hello. And product manager Simon Thompson. Guten Morgen. Okay, that's because we were in Germany this week. The reason the podcast is late is we're, most of us, three of us, were on a plane coming back from Frankfurt, uh, where we attended the Enlit Europe event. Yeah, it's a pretty impressive event. It took a couple of units of the Messe in Frankfurt, which is a pretty vast conference centre. One message we got from it is we heard uh, from the man whose job it is to keep the, the grid running in the Ukraine. He gave us an idea of how difficult that is and uh, how much help he needs. One message we'd like to bring to er everyone who listens to our podcast is if you have any grid equipment or generation equipment, or you've got an order for it that that you might not need yet uh, or urgently, get in touch with him and see whether perhaps uh, uh, Ukraine might be able to buy, beg, borrow or steal that equipment. Details are at uh, the end of the story on our website. Uh, the story entitled, These Bombs Are Not For Ukraine, They Are For Europe, because his opinion was that uh, they were meant to convince uh, uh, Europe to s- cease their support for the Ukraine, which was um, quite amusing given the amount of uh, uh, solidarity we saw at the event. Everybody was behind him, several people offered to give him uh, large chunks of generation equipment. So. If you want, if you go to that story at the end, there's contact details uh, for him and his colleagues, and you can get a list of uh, what Ukraine needs. But we'll leave that there. On this week's podcast, we're going to talk about the failed Spanish wind solar auction this week. We add Thailand to the list of Asian tigers who see a lot of potential in hydrogen. And we ask why Mazda has left it so long to think about shifting to EVs. And we'll um, see what our product manager Simon made of this week's issue. So, Andres, you wrote about the Spanish auctions. I'm not sure why you wrote about it, given that you're in Australia and Spain is over here. But um, tell us about it. Well, the simple story is that Spain held a 3.3 gigawatt renewable auction, 1.8 gigawatts for wind and 1.5 gigawatts for solar, and it only awarded 45 megawatts for some wind. And the reason for this is pretty simple. They still had the same price cap, uh, that they had for a prior auction uh, earlier in the year, basically before all this uh, energy crisis took off. So uh, maybe it's just not plausible legally to... to um... Actually, no, they didn't have the price, same price cap. That was Germany. <laughs> this is a Europe-wide issue where these auctions uh, have just not changed their rules much in many countries, in several countries, um, as the energy crisis has taken hold. And so uh, projects fall afoul of um, price caps. In the Spanish case, the price cap was probably... Uh, less than $50 per megawatt hour, but it also wasn't made public. So um, most projects, almost all of them... So everyone was, was guessing. Everyone was bidding yeah. without knowing what the prices was they were trying to beat. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it, it's, I, I guess, the governments either don't care or they weren't able to change the rules on the fly quickly enough or uh, they just weren't confident. <laughs> Um, of course, there's there's certainly other ways to build renewables than just through auctions. But uh... yeah, but I mean, I, I think this is part of a, of a wider malaise where we've seen um, 
contracts renegotiated, we've seen all sorts of uh, delays in rollout of renewables in Europe and in America. And it's really about the prices. Have they gone up forever? You know, are, uh, is solar and we, we, we talk about solar and wind continuing to fall in price over the next 30 years, but we have a glitch you know, and batteries as well. We have a glitch and where we have uh, a recession, we have prices rising. I think um, you you have to, um, I think people just take a while to to, to adjust to new pricing because they, they hope it's still going down. And um, when we talk to clients about this, they, they're often uh, telling us that, um, you know, they're asking, you know, is this permanent and how long will this take and when will this change and when will... The rarity in the market and and the recessionary factors and, uh, and and things like transport. Transport, I think, may may have changed. Um, uh, you're you're quite um, knowledgeable on that, Andres. Do you think transport's back to its old prices? Well, you mean the shipping costs? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, they're not quite back, but they're a lot lower than that uh, than they were. So uh, and and they're going to keep falling, I believe. So that is heard- less of an issue. We heard it here first from you about a year ago. You said, oh, it'll fall in about a year. <laughs> oh, really? Wow, I made a correct prediction for once. That's true. I know I always do that. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so, so, can, so this, think... can this auction be saved by, by putting it out at a, uh, a more reasonable price? I mean, given what, what are, are um, you know, uh, wholesale prices at the moment, are they more like 200 euros per megawatt hour? Yeah, exactly. Not 50. So, so um, yes, nobody wants to have a 25-year contract uh, against that backdrop, but no one knows what to do about it. You know, what is the right amount? Is it, is it, if it's not 50, is it 75? It, um, I mean, 75 uh, euros or dollars or pounds, uh, I'm, I'm getting confused. Is, um, well, it's strike price anyway. There's a strike price that, um, that, that uh, the UK government has, has used um, to try and claw back um, money, uh, the, the excess profits that renewable has, have made, and that that's a, that news only broke uh, a couple of days ago, and and there and people are looking at that saying, well, that's way lower than what's happening at the moment. So no one's really quite sure what the right price is. They need a period of stability, but you want that after the prices have come down even further. And uh, that's what's it, it, that, it's kind of interesting that the. It's not just the auctions. You know, when I was first writing this piece, I was a bit absent-minded. And I thought, well, if the auctions are weak, probably the PPAs are doing great because the PPA prices are higher. And then I remembered, of course, the PPAs are also shrinking, the scale of PPAs, even as their prices increase, because that's another long-term agreement. Um, so if you look at so- renewable development in this context, uh, solar is still okay because it's got the commercial and industrial self-consumption. It's got uh, feed-in from residential or whatever. Um and utility scale actually is still not doing badly at all in several countries, depending on how they set things up. Um, but probably this is really bad for wind, I would imagine. Um, well, it has been. I mean, we've got we've got all the three Western wind providers all having a a loss or nearly a loss in the last quarter, and all basically because everyone stopped doing. So everyone's just down tools in a period of uncertainty. It's hard to write fifteen to twenty-five year long contracts. Uh, Especially when all of your, almost all of your spending um, to build it, there's no fuel. All, all of the spending almost is 
right up front for a it's renewable capex. power plant. Yeah, it's yeah. now at a high price. Yeah, you, you wait a year and you build it and you go, oh, it's much cheaper. So everyone's, uh, I mean, this is what services like us are, are for. We have to provide certainty. We have to look for certainty for these customers to help them through that type of decision making. Um, and um, yeah, but, uh, even, but right now it's very hard to be certain about that, that stuff. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll move on a little. Interesting to see if Bob Gann can actually remember his Thailand story, um, which was uh, uh, an, an, another hydrogen bandwagon because um, he joined us late and um, I got the feeling he'd only just woken up. No, that's, that's actually not true. I did wake up a few hours ago. Um, but hopefully I will remember it because I wrote it during the um, conference, the Inlet conference in Frankfurt. Yeah. So, uh, a lot of things to remember from that um but yeah basically another asian country thailand looking into green hydrogen production we call this a trend uh a long time ago because i'm pretty sure we we write about a, an asia country signing a big hydrogen deal probably twice a month these days so this obviously reaffirms it a saudi company acwa power signed an mou with a few thailand energy companies to explore green hydrogen production the target is 225,000 tons of green hydrogen per year. We don't have a, a, a target um, year yet because um, details are still uh, meant to be explored. Uh, basically, Thailand is following the footstep, footsteps of Kazakhstan, Singapore, and Australia with those uh, multi-billion dollar gigawatt scale green hydrogen projects. Anyway, I was saying, uh, Thailand came out recently uh, I think it was last month, came out with a pledge to uh, carbon neutrality by 2050 and zero emissions by 2065. So starting to take steps, and they need to be, because at the moment, 40% of the energy mix comes from oil, 29% natural gas, 10% coal, about 20% biofuels and waste, and very, very little from uh, hydro and solar. And uh, most of the uh, green hydrogen produced will be used for exports and domestic use. Well, I mean, if, if it's not used for domestic use, then you're going to stay with the 40% oil, the 29% natural gas. So, I mean, hopefully some of this is going to be uh, uh, for domestic use. Um, the list of the other countries in Asia Pacific, Kazakhstan, Singapore, obviously Australia multiple times over, are all chasing um, hydrogen. Um, there's still non-believers out there who believe that the that these projects are just paper projects, that money is just talked up and never spent, and that they're all in the uh, phase of just researching whether or not to do this, rather than even though they've come out and said they're going to. What do you think of that? I think you are right. There are people out there who still um, doubt hydrogen very much, but there's just too much momentum, uh, not only behind those deals, but so many industries like aviation. Airbus was coming out with some news um yesterday and two days ago actually I'm pretty sure we're going to cover that in next week's issue they've run some more tests on hydrogen um, technologies related to aviation they're looking at um, airport infrastructure for um for better hydrogen um transport and and usage in, in airports so there's just too much momentum like i said um so i i, I don't um i don't think that people that doubt hydrogen well, uh, um, or having a, a good time for you. Someone pointed out to me the other day, what about the South Sea bubble? And, um, you know, if, if, if there are no historians among you, it's um, a company that was invested in 
back in when we first started investing in companies in the about 1700s and um it was a, a public private partnership which was meant to go um to the south sea island islands but mostly it was the slave trade um it ended up uh, everybody lost their money so um you can have a trend and it can be backed by two or three hundred people uh, with lots of money and it can still fail i mean that's that's the point of that story it is feasible uh, we don't think it will um, but that's um i've had that argument now three times in the last week but um yeah uh, these are fabulous amounts of money but is there any hydrogen produced yet no well you know let's see so we, we we'll have to we'll have to we we're certainly on the side of believing in hydrogen um but yeah. um, but the you know certainty is a hard thing to find at the moment um okay so we'll probably bring you another uh, european uh, asian uh, company that's going to get into hydrogen next week um it leaves us with this Mazda piece um connor you were really quite disparaging uh, about Mazda um and um it's taking a long time to shift to EVs. Um, but uh, were you at all convinced that they know what they're doing now? Not really, no. So I've mostly been contrasting Mazda's planned investments with its competitors around in the kind of Asian area of it's putting this one and a half trillion yen towards electrification, but it's also putting it towards increasing the efficiency of their ICE engines. And this is almost entirely going towards, or it's primarily going to be going towards research and development rather than industry. Right, yeah, yeah. I'm, that's right. It, how much of a head start has, has Tesla got? Oh, that's a full 10, 12 years yeah. over a company like Tesla. Uh, that's just dumb. I mean, what, what R&D do you need to do? You need to go and um, stand in the street and interview people and say, would you like to buy an electric car? And when... 40% of them say yes, or 50% of them say yes, you think, wow, how do we get one? You don't sit around saying, let's ask the R&D guys to help. Um, $11 billion that amounts to, that 1.5 trillion yen, so, uh, or roughly. So that's, you know, they're promising a lot of money to not change very much. I think part I of I think this, that's the end of the company, isn't it? Very, very possibly. And if it's last foray into EVs in 2021 with its MX-30 is anything to go by, it might be. <laughs> because they sold a grand total of 350 units, or about that, oh. over wow. two years. Yeah, well, that was, I mean, that, that, that was an SUV. I mean, the company is not known for SUVs. I mean, why would it say, you know what, let's enter a segment when, which we aren't going in at the moment. One where any sales we get are increases in market share. Let's go after a segment that no one's heard of us for, and let's see if we can dominate it. And and it, it, obviously, you know, that it, Mazda's are known for sporty cars. You know, the MX-5 was um, was one of the most popular cars in Europe for a long time. Um, you know, it was a sort of two-seater runabout, and everyone loved it. But um, it went off beat, really. I think the main thing here is that Mazda really needs to just return to its roots. As you say, return to the sporty little vehicle that's rather nippy and it feels good to drive. Because its attempt with the MX-30 to go into the SUV market with an electric vehicle that they've never made before, and it's just 
it feels as if they almost paid somebody to tell them what's popular at the moment. <laughs> and then they attempted it without <laughs> doing any due diligence and saying, oh, SUVs have been on the rise for the last half decade. Let's make one of those. And then they just cobbled one together. Yeah, let's, to make, utter failure. let's make a tank. Let's make a tank that weighs about three tons and let's try and move it with an electric battery that's inadequate uh, and give it a range of maybe 120 miles. I believe it was 35 kilowatts. So Mazda sold um, only 300,000 vehicles last year. I don't think, I think there's very little chance, apart from its epitaph, that we'll be writing about Mazda again. Um, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Um, okay. Um, Simon, um, anything you picked up from the, uh, the day's issue, this week's issue? Well, yes, it's a um, very good all-round edition. As you say, those, the, um, the hydrogen announcements and as a, a couple of good write-ups about um, the the uh, well, the Enlit show in uh, in Germany. I think it's like, you know, taking a pulse of the, the European energy scene. Before you say it, it's really nice to be out there among real-life people again, actually talking face-to-face -face with them. And I had a long chat with um, uh, one of the EVPs of um, Schneider Electric, yeah, yeah, and and they, you know, they get they get it. You know, it's nice to know that people at the top of that company get it, and they and they understand where the marketplace is going, and they have and they'll make money, you know, while while doing that. Um, it's nice to see our own Greg Jackson, the CEO of Octopus Energy, oh, from Octopus. Yeah. yeah, not just giving a, an impassioned okay. speech, um, and uh, you know, and coming up with two, three, four really original ideas, but then seeing him 10 minutes later doing just as passionate on his stand, telling, talking to uh, utility customers uh, or, or, or talking to, sorry, probably suppliers more likely than customers. But, um, but um, yeah, so, so that was, it was nice to see the world actually happening face to face. Yes. So, um, uh, yeah, all of that at our website, rethinkresearch.biz slash energy. And don't forget to like, click and subscribe wherever to, uh, to, to if you uh, enjoy this podcast. But what I was, uh, what did catch my eye was a little item in the uh, any other business section. And it was about the, the, the price of coal in China. And it's, it's fallen a few uh, points over the last few weeks uh, due to weak demand in, in, uh, in power. I, at the same time, there have been these riots about COVID lockdowns uh, that have made the, the news in, uh, on Western televisions. And so I was trying to figure out, um, or does the panel know, if the decline in, in demand is something to do with the COVID lockdowns and the, the regime in China, or is it due to any other circumstances? Apart from the obvious thing that they were all out at a, at a rally, so they didn't need to heat their homes. Um, you know, um, I mean, uh, two weeks ago, I, I posted this, um, this little update from the NEA, the National Energy Administration of China, saying that you're on your uh, power consumption growth was only up 2.2% in October, and I thought that was very weak. Um, 
And so maybe this is just part of that general weakness. I And when I saw that, I assumed it was because of weak demand, uh, demand for Chinese products from Europe or so. Um, but I was just chatting to Colin before this, and he was saying, no, it's because of the lockdown. So uh, it, is that basically correct, Connor? It's, it's just the lockdowns interfering with the economy again? I think it'll be a mixed bag of weakening European demand for electronics and that sort of thing. As you say, I was reading something earlier about a company that was expecting semiconductor shortages to alleviate in the next year, partially as a result of the coming recession in Europe and generally weakened consumer demand for electronic goods. I believe they um, they singled out smartphones and laptops and white goods, which I thought was interesting. And that some of the semiconductor producers that they were talking to were actively looking to automotive companies saying, do you want to increase your orders? We've got capacity now. And so I think, as you were mentioning, that weakening European demand is definitely going to be alleviating energy demand in China, because obviously those two are interlinked. I'd say it's not so much the riots themselves that are affecting energy demand, apart from what Peter says of them not having to be home while they go and uh, fight just to get back to coal, I'm always very disappointed about the sheer amount of coal that the Chinese economy uses. Do, do you think, um, and I know that it's supposed to be declining, or is it supposed to be declining over the next 20 or 30 it's years? It's decelerating the rate of building new ones. The thing about, the thing about coal, you've got to remember, people burn it uh, inside uh power stations and that yes that is polluting but it's not as polluting as if you burn it in your home uh, or if you burn it in the district heat network um, so you you end up getting a disproportionate amount of pollution for a smaller amount of burning um, as you distribute the burning of coal um, so if anyone's ever visited china 20 years ago uh, and Beijing, you look up at the sky and you say, why can't I see the, the sun or the clouds? It's just, there was just a haze. Um, and they had no idea that it was just particulate matter from burning coal. I mean, they, yeah, and that's, that's what it was. Um, now, you know, so if, if coal demand goes down, maybe people are not burning the coal at home. Maybe they're not burning them in district heat networks. Maybe they, they are not burning it for... Um, power. If it is for power, um, then you're right. It, it, it's 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 a, almost a preferred fuel. So they're not going to. Um, they'll only uh, burn less coal if there is a total less energy. Although there are places where you could look up the the daily energy output, but um, we haven't done that. I, I just thought of something, which is that Ch China has uh, a lot of this old coal capacity, and the worst, uh, least efficient plants are probably already only uses when it's at peak demand anyway. Uh, but there is this shift from lower efficiency to higher efficiency coal. I mean, if you take your power plant's efficiency from 30% to 40%, you've just cut the country's um, coal uh, use as well as emissions by uh, a quarter. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, the, uh, the fact that they still leave the net zero target all the way forward into 2030 suggests that they still expect a lot of economic growth. Um, now, maybe that won't happen, or maybe I'm focusing too much on the coal grid, and maybe they're just looking at uh, fuel consumption for vehicles. Um, just, just some thoughts. Yeah, well, the thing about, um, we, we have this conversation weekly, which is uh, when will China's continued rise in GDP stop? And, are, and is the government there really in complete control of it? 
and, and and can they be in control of it in every circumstance? And it really, as they get more interlinked with other countries and supply to other countries, you're right, they're completely in the, the lap of, um, of the recessionary gods. Uh, it's great to be back out uh, doing shows again, um, talking to face-to-face with real people. Um, the issues on the website, www.rethinkresearch.biz. Click on energy. This week's um, weekly analysis is free of charge. It's meant to entice you to buy a subscription to the forecast and data segment where we deal with these more difficult issues using um, any numbers at our disposal uh, and doing forecasts out to 2050. So um, with that, we're going to end this week's podcast and uh, we'll talk to you again, uh, again next week.